The Bible reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. I'm reading from the ESV version. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's good to be me here this morning. One of the things that I'm battling with, as you'll tell by my voice, it's a little bit scratchy. And uh, I woke up about midnight on Thursday night with a really sore throat. Uh, we have our nine-year-old grandson living with us, and he'd been off from school for two days earlier in the week. And I think he must have passed on what he had to me. Uh, he shared it with me. So, I'm, yeah, so I'll trust I'll get through. I got through the first service, so uh, I'll trust we'll get through this morning. Let's pray together and speak to the Lord. Lord, we want to thank you for that we can come to you this morning. Thank you for your word that teaches us and instructs us, and pray that you might, by your spirit, minister to each of our hearts and lives today. Pray that you might give me discernment and wisdom in what to say, that I might be just in touch with what you want said here this morning. And ask, we just totally depended upon you, pray my voice will be able to uh, be strong enough to get me through this morning. And we ask that you might just minister to each heart, each person that's here this morning might hear something from you that can be of encouragement, that might meet whatever spiritual need they have. And ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, there's some people that seem to be plagued with uh, the worry and they're concerned about lots of different things. And uh, they, you know, often they're concerned about what other people think about them. And like at one time, I remember some years ago, I 
asked a year seven class of, I was teaching RE, this whole class, and asked them a question. I said, well, you know, let's just imagine that you, you've passed away, because they're 12 and 13 year olds, they've got another stacks of years ahead of me, so ahead of them, so they, what would you put on your gravestone? And it's, it's, this exercise has been done lots and lots of times in lots of different settings and situations. And so they sat down and they started to think about how that they would like to be remembered. And I'm sure, I'm sure that there's lots of people that feel this way. They're wondering about how that they, how would they be remembered? How would people remember them? And uh, they get concerned about it. other people just, you know, just live life as it is, don't we? And we don't worry about it too much. But one of the things is we remember people by the actions that they take and by the words that they use. And uh, as they personally interact with us, we remember certain people and they make a, an impact on us. Or some people don't make much of an impact at all. Depends on the, the situation and the circumstances. But certainly we need to be living our lives in a way that we are glorifying God. And that's when we come to this passage this morning, we're going to be looking at the, the context of Ephesians chapter 4. And the, we've read the first 16 verses of that chapter. Let's just do a little bit of review of the what's happened in the, the first three chapters. There have been sermons from this that outlined our position in Christ, of being believers and knowing God and being in Christ. Also, we've heard about how that the God had done a great work in bringing the, the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers together in one as one in the church. And that was happening not only in this congregation, but in other congregations as well. And so there was this bringing together of people from all backgrounds to be the church. And so Paul had been teaching them and reminding them. And of course, if you go, I remember going in my Bible and encircling the word we and you, us, we, us, and the, and the word you, where Paul was talking about himself in the early, particularly the early part of the epistle about the Jewish people. And then, then the you he was talking about in referring to the Gentile people. And so it's quite interesting. As you get back, as you go further through into the second half of the epistle, it's not quite so clear cut but particularly in the first part of, of the epistle. And so in that first part, there's more about the, the doctrine and the teaching. And this seems to be a, a pattern that's there in a lot of the epistles. You go to Colossians, you'll find the same thing. You'll find similar thing in Galatians. And others would say that Romans, but although it's not quite, it doesn't quite clearly fit into that pattern, but there's the early part, which is the doctrine, and then from chapter 12 onwards, the, the practical part of the, of the epistle. And so it seems as though here we've got an epistle that is written that gives some practical teaching at the end, but the, the doctrinal teaching at the front. And so you know, in these next three chapters, we're going to be focused on how we should be living, how we should be living our lives. And the title that I've given to, as I looked at, as trying to just summarise these 16 verses, and I, I came up with this title, Living with Integrity, and growing into maturity together. And that to me sums up, <coughs> me, sums up what I think that this particular passage is about. Living with integrity and growing into maturity together. The whole emphasis is on unity and working together and living together and serving God together. Of course, when Paul had written earlier, he'd seen, you know, in, in particularly, he says in chapter 2 and verse 10, we are, his, we are God's workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And so this, these next three chapters really seem to outline how to live as a Christian more than the theoretical thing. Although that, that's not quite, it may, may not be t literally true in every aspect of it. It really is, as Peter wrote, he talked about how that these, the Christians there would partake in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world through evil, by evil desire. You know, in other words, all believers are expected to be growing in their relationship with the Lord. And so I believe this could be an accurate sort of little summary of what these three chapters are about. But he starts off with some, looking at some of the personal qualities that would enhance unity, because I'm going to be using that word unity again and again and again through this passage as I, in my headings as I look at this passage. The, 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 so the personal qualities that enhance unity in the first two verses. He starts off and says, As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you then to live a life worthy of your one calling you have received. Paul starts off and talks about how he's a prisoner. And he was in prison. He re referred in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he said, as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And then he refers to himself as a prisoner of the Lord. He reminded the Ephesians that he was in prison. Excuse me. While he is writing this epistle, he's not free to go about Rome and do what he wants to do. He couldn't go everywhere he wanted to. He was imprisoned. He was restricted. He was limited in the things that he could do. But he doesn't highlight the, the limitations that he had. He doesn't highlight the problems that he had. He just states this as a matter-of-fact thing, that he's there as a prisoner. In other words, he wasn't allowing his own personal circumstances to get on top of him. I don't know about you, but it's very easy sometimes when things aren't going right. Now, yesterday I was sitting down having lunch, uh, a fair way from home, at a fish and chip, having some nice piece of fish that would have been grilled and some chips and we had and some salad and things and I had a cup of coffee sitting on the table. Well, you wouldn't believe it, the gust of wind came and that whole cup of coffee went upended onto the table and landed right, most of the contents of the coffee landed in my lap. And we still had to walk about one and a half k's to where our car was parked. And it was, you know, fortunately I wasn't burnt by it, but I, here I had this very uncomfortable coffee, you know, and the, my shorts were very wet at the front and the back. And it looked like I'd had an accident. Not an accident with coffee, but another accident. And so I had to, you know, quite embarrassing to walk back to the car. Yeah, now, that, that's just, those little things are really nothing, are they, compared with some of the things that you guys might be going through. I don't know what you've been ha what's been happening in your life in this last week. I don't know what's been happening in your life for the last few days. I don't know what stresses and pressures that you're going through. I don't know what's happening for you. But God does. He knows everything that's going on in your life and you know, he can meet you in those situations. The same as Paul was not, he he'd found God was there alongside him supporting him and helping him through this very difficult situation while he was imprisoned. And he goes on and he focuses to these people. They say, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
I want you to live a life that is worthy of the faith that you have. It's said in, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, he, he said, we pray this in order that you may, <coughs> may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. In, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20, whatever happens, this is why it, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. To the Thessalonians, he said, they should be encouraging and comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Here, Paul was encouraging these people. He was exhorting them to live a life worthy of their calling. Live true to your character. And he follows it on by giving them uh, an example. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. He outlines four characteristics. He says, hum he talks about humility, he talks about gentleness or meekness, he talks about patience and long-suffering, and he also speaks about bearing with one another or forbearing one another, putting up with one another. Four things that he wanted to tell them about that he know wanted them to take note of. The first thing was humility. You say, well, what's, what's the big deal? If you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard this necessity to humble yourself before God. You probably heard about it. But back there in that pagan world, humility was not regarded as a virtue. It was regarded as a vice. You know, having a low opinion of yourself wasn't regarded very highly amongst the people of that, in that, particularly the Greek culture. And so here he's saying that you need to have this, which was contrary to what the world around them believed. And isn't that true? Many of the times you're going to find that a lot of your key Christian beliefs are not the things that other people around believe. The things that you see as Christian virtues may not always necessarily be accepted by people around the place as the right way to live. And so we find that sometimes we're in conflict with the beliefs around us and, and this was one of those about humility or be humble or lowliness as some translations have this. And Paul described himself to the church as, I am the least of God's people, in chapter 3 and verse 8. The Paul, when he wrote to the church at Philippi, talked about the greatest example of humility was when the Lord Jesus Christ came from heaven, was born as a man, grew up, died on the cross, was buried and rose again from the dead. That was one of the greatest examples of humility. And he talks, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. In, chapter, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, he says, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. And when he spoke to these people at Ephesus earlier on, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 19, excuse me, <coughs> He says, I served the Lord with great humility and tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. And, when, and, the, verse, and the, the idea that I mentioned earlier <coughs> was that we are exhorted in First Peter to humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So as far as humility is concerned, we are expected to humble ourselves. I believe it's a dangerous thing 
I've heard from different testimonies of different people at times when they've said, asked God to humble them and they really wish they hadn't prayed that prayer, they wish they'd humble themselves on their own because sometimes God allowed, they, it seems to them in their, that they, God allowed them to go through some very difficult things that they needn't have gone through if they'd simply humbled themselves before God. So we're told to humble ourselves before God and he's going to lift us up in due time. And this was particularly addressed to the, the leaders, the elders at that church, as Peter, well, those churches, as Peter wrote that epistle. The idea of gentleness or meekness. Some people think meekness is weakness, being weak. But really the term is used to describe the, where you've got an animal that's under your complete control. I don't have a dog. I don't have a cat, but we have a bird at home. That's the only animal we've got in our house at the moment, apart from ourselves. But we have had dogs and we have had cats. Do they always do what you tell them to do? I've done, I haven't found that. I've found that there's sometimes a little... But here, it's not applying... It's sort of the same term as used of the way in which you control and discipline an animal, but it's meant to apply to people how that we need to be disciplining and controlling ourselves because we need to exhibit this meek character. And of course the Lord Jesus referred to the meek are those who shall inherit the earth in in the Sermon on the Mount. So here he's he's outlining some characteristics, some basic characteristics that he's expecting to see in these people. And I believe this can be the foundation. If we are walking with God and we are living in tune with God and we are implementing and doing those things and incorporating those things into our character and our person and our being, then we are more likely to be able to fulfil some of the things that come later in this passage. I think this is basically the foundation. He talks also about being patient or long-suffering. And of course we know that God is patient and long-suffering. There's lots lots of scriptures that tell us about that. But one of the things is, if you go to the, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so patience is one of those things that there used to be a little saying I used to hear about. And it was all about something that was, and it depended on whether it was said by a male or a female, uh, about possess it if you can. Uh, never in one or the other, and it's, it always seems to get jumbled up. I've heard different people using it in different ways, but I don't think that's accurate, is it? It's all of us need to be patient, and I don't know about you, but it's one of those things that I'm continually tested in. I think I've, you know, you think you've mastered it, and then suddenly something happens, and you don't show the amount of patience and and uh, long suffering that you need to, or that you could have done. And so it's one of those things that we need to be constantly work, working on. And so here. He's reminding these people. He's also reminding them that they need to be bearing with one another. You know, forbearing one another is another scriptural way in the translation. It involves bearing one's weakness, bearing one another's weaknesses, and not ceasing, uh, you know, to accept them as friends and neighbours, even though they've got faults that might displease us. Isn't that a test when a friendship? When somebody does something that really gets on your goat but it doesn't spoil your friendship, that's what it's the idea here, bearing with one another. And as Christians, we need to be developing that. And that's what he wanted these people to be developing. And so he's mentioned these four things to them. Then he goes on and he talks about 
the whole basis of their unity, and he's confirming this. He's saying, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He's, saying, he's not saying create unity. He's saying maintain. And the, the idea is to be zealous. Zealously working out. You know, keep on or, or maintaining the, their unity. To be zealous about this. To be really keen to, and, and zealous to make sure that you're maintaining this, this very thing. This unity. Because a church is not just a, merely an organisation, is it? It's not, a, it's not just an or, you know, organisation. It's a spiritual structure, isn't it? A church is an organism. And here he's saying, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Keep something they've already got because Jews and Gentiles have been made one. All sorts of people. Now, I don't know about you, I've come from a family of, uh, I've got four brothers and four sisters. So there's five boys and four girls in the family that I come from. We're all still alive, our parents have passed away. We're still alive, we still have contact with one another and we still relate to one another. Now I had no choice in having those brothers. It was something that was outside of my control. Nothing to do with me. I was just one of them. I'm the, I'm the second eldest, I'm the eldest son. I've got a sister older than me and I've got you know, four brothers younger than me and three sisters younger than me. Now I have no... It's the same thing in a church. We don't, we don't choose who's going to be members of the church. We don't choose who are going to be our fellow Christians. We're just part of the, the family. And we're, we're, and we're meant to be making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he goes on and he outlines, as Paul goes on and he outlines as, that, as Josh referred to it and read earlier on, you know, there's one body and there's one spirit. There's seven things that he mentions that are here in the church. And he's emphasising the different, the fact that there's, one, there's a body and there's a spirit. There's one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Now, I'm not going to go through an outline and speak about it, but he's highlighting the sense of there that there's the whole thing of he's emphasising unity. He's emphasising that you've got to be making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit because of all of these things. We are one, and we have a responsibility to be ensuring and making every effort that we are maintaining that unity. Now it doesn't seem it doesn't say uniformity. We're not all the same. We're all di we're different, and we've got different skills, different abilities. And we'll come to that in a moment. But one of the things also he goes on and he starts to talk about the gifts in chapter four, verses seven to thirteen. But each of you, one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Grace is given. As Christ apportioned. And then he goes on and he goes through, a, a referring to back to Psalm 68, and he goes through and he outlines the fact that the Lord Jesus died and he descended, and he says he descended into the lower earthly regions. And some people would say that that's when he went down into hell. And uh, although this passage doesn't elaborate on that, it doesn't seem to emphasise that, in my opinion. 
But some people see that in, the, in reading this passage. But also he ascended. <coughs> and so here and it says, this resurrect, the Lord Jesus who died and rose again, he gave gifts to the church. I don't know about you, but I've been in church life for nearly 50 years as a Christian. And one of the things that I've found that does divide the church is different ideas about the gifts within the church. And Paul here is highlighting the fact that God, the Lord Jesus, has died and, and risen again and he's given gifts to the church and they should be something that's unifying the church and drawing the church together. Gifts are meant to bring the church together. And so he says, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers. And so he's outlined four different gifts. Now, it, there are other gifts mentioned in other parts of the scripture. It's not a, an exposition of all of the gifts. It's just an example. He's giving an example of four, role, four positions, that, roles that people played as apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors, well, pastors and teachers. So he's outlining a number of different gifts that have been given to the church. He doesn't elaborate on what they mean. And so we've got to try and work out what we think he meant by the word apostle. And some would speculate that as in Philippians chapter 2 verse 25, it's used in the general word as a messenger. It's certainly referred to the 12 whom Jesus chose. And then also there are other people that are mentioned as apostles like Barnabas and James, the Lord's brother, and Silas and Junius and Andronicus are mentioned as apostles. So, he, you know, that's in other scriptures. But he doesn't explain what it's all about. He's not into explaining the, 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 the significance. He's using this to say there are different types of gifts. He's trying to show there are, there's a diversity of, of roles that people have in the church. And he's using the illustration of apostles. And he goes on about prophets. And, of course, a prophet is somebody who speaks for God. And there's, then, there's an Old Testament prophets and there are New Testament prophets. It also speaks about evangelists and they're those who share the gospel and preach the gospel. And, and Philip's mentioned in, chapter, in Acts chapter 21 and verse 8 as an evangelist. Incidentally, he had four daughters who also who prophesied. Then it goes on and talks about pastors and teachers. And this is often linked together as a, and there's some debate about whether it's one or two roles. But this, the, the two roles of pastors and, is the idea of a shepherd and we've, uh, as you go to First Peter chapter 5, it talks about shepherds in the flock of God. And then also elders are required to, in First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 as those who have an ability to teach. So he's using these illustrations to illustrate, rather these gifts to illustrate the fact that there is diversity, there's differing things that different people have been, gifts that have been given. But the whole thing was to bring unity to the church. Because it goes on in verse 12, it says, the gifts are given you know, for a purpose, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ might be built up until we reach the unity of the faith in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So here, these gifts were there to facilitate the functioning of the church and the ministries of the church. And to build up the church. 
and to, and to bring them together in unity and also to ensure that the people go on to maturity because we'll make a, a few more comments about that as we go on in the next few verses. But the whole thing of bringing maturity to, to believers. And so we go, we go to chapter 14, verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown. There'll be every wind of teaching and by the cunning and the craftiness of men in the... He gives a picture of the many biblical... There's a number of biblical illustrations of the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee with storms coming up and the boat being tossed around. And here's the, this is what the illustration is of... Of some people are like that. You know, this, this is the negative side of things. He's, he's negative to be avoided. To, he's, he's referring to this infantile, this you know, immature way of behaving. He's, he's, he's making clear that that's, not, that's to be avoided. And he uses a, a few illustrations about people being whirled around and tossed around. And he also uses some, term, some of the terminology there of people being coo- uh, uh, fooled also by, and he uses the, like the term that's been used for loaded dice. If you go and, and if you, the, dose is, the dice has been loaded and you're trying to play a game with dice, and particularly in the, in referring to a gambling illustration, then you haven't got a chance of winning, have you? And also he talks about deceitful scheming. So he's, he's giving, highlighting a whole lot of negative stuff saying, this is a stuff to be avoided. But he goes on and talks about the positive side of things. He says, instead, as Christians, this is how to remedy it. Speaking the truth in love, we will will in all things grow into him who is the head. That is Christ. He's talking in terms, and he goes on from the, and he talks in terms of the body being joined and held together by every supporting ligament that grows and builds itself in love as, as each part does its work. So he goes, he's using the illustration here of the body and the connectedness of the body. And he's referring to ligaments that join things together. And talk about, but also he's emphasising the fact that Christ is the head. That the Lord is the one who's the head in charge. And so he's trying to get this across to these people. He's trying to emphasise the fact that unity comes from being connected. So I'm just going to give you a brief summary of what I've said this morning. In the first few verses, we've noted some qualities that will enhance any individual member of a congregation in their own walk with God and also for the corporate congregation. He reminded them in the verses 3 to 6 to be zealous to protect unity that God has, cre- God has created. He reminded, in verses 7 to 13, he talked about the risen Lord Jesus who provided them with gifted people who were responsible to foster unity and to glorify God. And in 14 to 16, maturity in Christ brings stability where a healthy body moves as the head directs it, the Lord Jesus. Because... This morning, as we finish our service, as I finish my, ser- my sermon, I was trying to think of a best, the best illustration I could use, and I thought, well, the Lord Jesus is the, is the shepherd, the good shepherd. He died, he gave his life for us. He also is the, the great shepherd who rose from the dead. He's also the chief shepherd 
who's going to come and rule in power and great glory. And the picture of a flock in the, in the, in the, in the Bible and the role of the shepherd is the one who goes ahead and leads and, guide and directs. He doesn't come behind and chase. He goes ahead and leads. And the sheep hear his voice and follow him. We need to be hearing his voice and listening to him. And in the, if we do that, then we're going to stay together and remain united in the tasks that are ahead of us, in the ministries that we have, in the role that we have, in whatever it might be in the church, if we are going to be following in his steps. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for us being able to be together this morning. We thank you that you're a God who knows and understands everything that's going on in each of our lives. Help us, Lord, to be living close to you. Help us to be listening to you as the as the one who wants to lead us as the shepherd of the flock and help us to walk closely with you and help us to listen to you and to be submissive to you and to follow your directions all of the time. So Lord, help us in that process throughout this coming week as we, no matter what our situation, help us to be listening to you and walking close to you because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.